Welcome to Crossroads Church Podcast. We are located in Northern Colorado, and it is good to be with you. This week, Ryan is teaching and wrapping up week nine of Campfire Stories, another great story. And if you have missed any of these, go back and listen and catch all of them. And one way to be sure that you will not miss any content is by subscribing. And so every time we post content, you will be alerted and you can stay connected in these seasons of travel or busy family weekends or whatever you have going on. It's a wonderful way to stay connected. And another great way to stay connected is through our Connect card. We love to know who is with us, and you can access a shortcut to that in the show notes, and you can fill out whatever you're comfortable with. If you're a regular listener, put your name, email address, and click regular attender or listener. If you are new here and you've just discovered it recently, we're glad you're here fill out as much as you're comfortable with as well. And in the comments section, you can say that you are part of the podcast. That's how you listened in. I want to know who you are and where you're from. And I just love connecting with people. Well, you might want to pause now, go to the show notes and access the digital talk notes or PDF talk notes. If you love fill-ins, Ryan includes those in his message. And so you can access those there. And otherwise, here comes Ryan with week nine of Campfire Stories. happening? Hi. I want to welcome those of you sitting close to me. I appreciate that. So good to see everybody. If you are a guest this morning, thank you so much for coming today. My name is Ryan, and I know that walking into a church can be a difficult thing <laughs> for the first time. And so thank you very much for doing that. And I want to especially welcome those of you who uh, you would say, hey, I'm like part of a community that the church has generally not been very good at welcoming. I want to thank you especially for coming. You might come and wonder if there's anybody like you here, and then we just want you to know you're welcome, and uh, we love you, and you are in love. I don't think God can love because I think God is love. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but wrap your head around that one for just a second. (laughs) So it's good to have everybody here. Uh, I I don't say this, and I should say it more often. Uh, Immediately following the service, I'll be standing right down here if anybody wants to come say hi, whether if you're a guest, this is your first or second time, whether you come all the time and we've never had the opportunity to meet, or maybe I said something that was really confusing uh, or foolish or you couldn't, what was that? Please come up, love to chat and talk, say hi. I'll be down here afterwards. And if you'd like to have coffee sometime, just text me. So I give this out. Everybody has it. It's on the website. My cell phone number is 207-608-1106. And I would love to get to know you. I was supposed to be doing this two years ago when we first got here, but COVID and all that stuff. But uh, um, so hopefully if you feel comfortable and you'd like to, uh, for some reason, get to know me, I would love to get to know you. And uh, some of you have taken advantage of that and we've been able to uh, do that and 
I, I love it because I force you all to buy the coffee. And so that's uh, super sweet of you. I pre- no, I'm just kidding. I'll even buy the coffee. But uh, it's good to have everybody here. We're wrapping up our series, Campfire Stories. Uh, and this is our ninth episode, believe it or not. So if you're tuning in online or if you're on the atrium, thank you so much for being a part of Crossroads. We have orange dots of hope all over the world, like Dennis said, uh, literally all over the world, creating communities where people can find hope and uh, bring life and love and joy uh, into the world around them in their everyday normal lives. So I know you're wondering, like, what happens next? Like Campfire Series is ending. Are we just closing the church? Is this the end of it all? Did we give it a good run? 24 years. Uh, Sorry, John, our founding pastor is here. Maybe it's just we peaked at Campfire Stories and this is the end of it. So no, the doors will be open next week. The online broadcast will be happening. Next week, we're going to talk about a vision for volunteering. We're going to talk about this value of giving of ourselves, particularly in the life of the gathered church. And uh, we're going to be challenging folks to jump in and use your talents uh, to create a space of hope. So if you want to find something else to do next week, I understand sometimes that can be an uncomfortable week, but that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the power of volunteering. And then in two weeks, we launch a, a new, uh, new journey, a new series uh, called Believing Like Jesus. What did Jesus believe about God? And that sometimes can feel like a foreign question to us because uh, we think, well, Jesus was God. So what do you mean? Well, Jesus was also fully human. And so Jesus had to work out that stuff. I believe that deeply. And so we're going to look at some episodes in the life of Jesus and really ask the question, what was God like? What was the God like that Jesus believed in? And uh, we have these journey groups that are going to be starting and launching on that same weekend. And if you're interested in kind of growing in community and discussing the topics, uh, jump into one of those journey groups. And you can find out information about that online. But you can also, in the atrium today, on, the, on your way out, you can stop. And Isaac Bartholomew, our pastor of Community Life, will be there, can get you any information about those groups. And if you're online, uh, just watch online on the website. You can check that out. And I would encourage you, if you are an Orange Dot of Hope community somewhere around the planet, start a group, connect together, be a part of this process uh, as we grow as a network, not just as simply uh, here in this one spot. So that's what's happening. Our anchor verse for this series is John 21, 25. If you haven't memorized it by now, don't worry about it. It's over. You missed your chance. So if you didn't memorize it, it's probably a month or two extra in purgatory. But, you know, it's okay. We'll work it all out uh, there. It's no problem. So this anchor verse uh, just simply says that there's so many things that Jesus did. uh, If you were to describe all of them individually, the whole world couldn't contain the books that would be written. And the idea is that what the disciples, what the authors of Scripture did was they kind of took and they told stories to help us understand Jesus. They, told, they were good storytellers. And we, these stories have power because they, they, they happen all the time. It's not that they happened once. It's that they happen all the time. They have a parabolic nature. And so we've just been looking at different stories and wondering, like, what would it look like to sit around the campfire, talk about kind of attention in our lives, and have that wise person, I'll play the role of the wise person, uh, uh, tell us a story. I understand I'm playing a part here. You know, that's not true, but uh, absolutely. So here's the thing. If you're in the room, online, out in the atrium, I want you to uh, do a thought experiment with me for a moment. Uh, Close your eyes. Close your eyes. We're going to have the ushers come around and take your wallets. So just close your eyes. No, we're not going to do that. Close your eyes for me for just a moment and think about this question. What was the best job you ever had? And what made it so good? So just take like 10 seconds. If we had Jeopardy music, we'd be playing it right now. Do, 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 do. What would be the best job you ever can okay, open your eyes up and, and think about it? Like, was, it the, was the job so great because of the people you worked with? 
You just loved them, right? Was the job so great because maybe you had a boss that you connected with and they believed in you and they were uh, what Liz Wiseman would say in her book, her classic book, Multipliers. Like they were a multiplying agent in your life. Like you never thought you could get so much done. You never thought you could accomplish so much because this person believed in you and set up good systems and structures and encouraged you along the way. Or maybe it was just the work. Maybe the work itself was, maybe the environment was awful, but you just believed deeply in the work and that kept you engaged. And it was just like, oh, I felt so like I was just making a difference in the world, right? We all have those experiences. Now, another thought experiment, I won't have you close your eyes because you won't have to think very hard about this one. What was the worst job experience you've ever had? Like, right, you could write the book right now on that one. And you know exactly why that was the worst one because you've thought about it. Like you thought what you would do, whose houses you'd burn down, what industry you'd set on fire, whatever it might be. Like, you know, because it's just real. Like you still feel it in your person. Like for reality, you might have had a job experience that was so traumatic. Literally me asking the question is, is hard. I think it's legitimately hard emotionally because it just brings up like a space where you felt less than, you felt like there was constant clashes. Maybe it was a clash with a boss or a coworker or even the work itself, right? These things can promote wonderful work environments. They can also provide very harmful, dangerous, toxic work environments. And we have difficult work experience. One of the things that happens, and, and it kind of happens with coworkers, it happens with um, a, a boss. It happens with the work itself. One thing that promotes a difficulty, and this is your first fill-in. I'm giving you like a heads up so you're not freaking out when the yellow bold words show up on the screen, okay? Here it is right there for you. We have difficult work experiences when personal morals clash with an institution's ethics, all right? I'm gonna say that one more time so you can write that down and then pay attention to me. That's one thing I hate about fill-ins. I lose everybody as you're trying to figure out where to put it in. And so what I say for like 10 seconds doesn't matter. I mean, let's be honest, what I say for about 30 minutes doesn't really matter for most of us, but that's all right. So listen, here's what happens in our lives. Like this thing of morality clashes with ethics. Now, what's the difference between morality and ethics? Because oftentimes we use these words together as if they're the same thing. And sometimes we can, but for today, let's kind of think about and, and identify some terms. So uh, ethics, ethics are kind of the rules of the game. It's what everybody agrees on in an industry or in a job or in an organization. Like this is what you do to succeed. So you might have a, 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 a neighborhood homeowners association. How many of y'all love your HOAs? Really? This is the first two people in my life I've ever met who like their HOAs. I don't know who creates HOAs. Maybe you created the HOAs, right? The Benzels created their HOA. They're who nobody likes, right? No, I'm just teasing. Most people, like, I've never heard people like, I, I appreciate and understand my HOA, but a lot of times I just don't. I mean, I just I don't get it, right? Like, why can't we be adults? Just mow your lawn, right? I mean, what, what, why do I need a rule to tell me to mow my lawn? But at any rate, uh, the nature ways, there's an ethic, like here how, here's how we behave as neighbors. That's, a, that's an ethical code, so to speak. Whole industries have ethics. Uh, the financial industry has an ethic, right? So uh, an organization, a CEO of an organization that has shareholders functions from an ethic profits for the shareholders. That's the ethics. So decisions get made through that framework. If their highest responsibility and their mode of accountability is to their shareholders, they're going to make decisions that might not be the best moral decisions for themselves. That It might, might not be illegal. I'm not saying they would necessarily do something illegal, but they're going to make decisions through that framework, through that ethic. Now, morality is different, right? Morality are kind of the, the principles that you and I might live by personally, they're the decisions that we make based upon what we think are wise and unwise for our lives. And they're generally grounded in a system, 
right? So here's what gets fascinating is like a church, a religious organization, a religion can have an ethic. This is what we do as a religion. We pray on these days. We fast on these days. We eat on these days. Uh, we go to church on these days. We give. There's an ethical code. But then there's morality that oftentimes our lives are grounded in like what's right and wrong, and that gets intertwined with a faith as well. But morality are kind of those rules based upon what I believe is right or wrong, how I ought to treat people, what, what is right or wrong or wise or unwise. Those might be better words to do with my money. What's wise and unwise? Uh, like, for example, the shirt I'm wearing today, I realized probably wasn't a wise one for church <laughs> because it's got this like little skull thing on it. <laughs> and if you don't know, like I already had one person ask me like, what's with the skull, right? It's, it, it's an Under Armour shirt, like on one of the sleeves. So it's just, it, it's supposed to make me look like Dwayne Johnson. That's <laughs> that, that's what it's supposed to do. Uh, so my muscles are supposed to look bigger. My stomach is supposed to look smaller. It's cut that way. I don't know if it's working or not, but uh, it's not about worshiping the devil. So I realized this shirt might have been problematic, right? Might not have fit into the moral code of what you wear to church. I've never been good at that one, all right? So my apologies. So now we got that off my chest. Literally, everybody knows we're not worshiping the devil. Okay. But we have this, so that's the difference, right? Like I make personal decisions based upon what I believe is morally right and wrong. Now here's what's fascinating. You don't have to be a moral person to be ethical. You don't have to be moral to be ethical. So you could function, like for example, I obey my homeowners association rules most of the time, but not because of a moral code that I believe I shouldn't have my camper parked in front of my, my, in my, in my own driveway for more than two days at a time. Like, I don't have any moral problem with that, but I uphold the ethical code because I don't want to get fined $150 every day beyond those two days that my camper sits in my driveway that I pay taxes on. But I'm not bitter about that, right? Not at all. So someone without a moral compass can follow all the ethical codes to fit in. Right, like when when here this is here's the truth. Um, we don't pass an offering basket right now because of COVID. Like we just haven't passed an offering basket. And 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 so some people, when that offering basket comes by, there's like an ethical code. I'm in church. I should drop a tip in for God. And so what happens is when you like that's this is a beautiful example of the difference between moral principles and ethic code. So like it comes down and somebody next to you drops a little money in or an envelope that appears to be money. We feel the ethical pressure. I should give right. And so we give, but it's not necessarily, so when the offering basket isn't passed, or now we use the orange boxes in the back, or if you're tuning in online, you give online, you just stop giving, right? Now, I'm not judging you for that. I'm just saying this is a great example of the difference between corporate ethics and personal morality. There's a corporate ethic of like, boy, to, to like kind of fit in, I should throw a little change in there, right? So we're going to start passing the basket around again just to pay. No, I'm just joking around. Right? So that's what I mean. So there is this difference. And what happens in work is we're oftentimes faced with these professional opportunities that bring what we call moral and ethical dilemmas. And that's what a moral dilemma is. That's what an ethical dilemma is. It's when all of a sudden these two things in my life, and let's talk particularly because it's Labor Day around work and employment. And your work might not necessarily be at an organization, institution. Think about your work as just what you do, your everyday normal life, your Monday through Friday responsibilities. You might not get a paycheck for it, but you might have, have committed to it. So you might be a stay-at-home parent. You might be the president of the homeowners association, whatever it might be. You have this work, okay? That's what is a moral dilemma. And, and then we're faced with this question. What happens 
What happens when all of a sudden I have to decide between what I think is a wise thing to do as a follower of Jesus, okay? So Crossroads is a community of people that were grounded in this idea of following the way of Jesus. And so if you're, if you're kind of been around for a while, you're kind of done kicking the tires and you say, I get it, I'm in, you, you cross that, that space and make that commitment. Now you're saying, okay, now I'm gonna run all my decisions through this framework. Well, what happens when all of a sudden the wise thing to do as a follower of Jesus isn't the wise thing to do as an employee seeking promotion, right? What happens in that world? And that reminds me of a story, right? So if we were sitting around a campfire and somebody were to say, oh, I've got this issue at work. They're offering me this promotion, but I have to do this to get it. But it just, it feels gross. I don't know that I should do that. It's not illegal, but it just doesn't feel like this is something that Jesus would do. It feels outside the idea of enough for everybody, this ethic of God. And it reminds me of a story of two women in the, in the book of Exodus, and their names were Shifra and Pua. And again, these are two women that we don't know a whole lot about, so we have to kind of piece together a bit of their story. So Shifra and Pua, I imagine, they grew up in probably the town of Ramses. They grew up in Egypt. Their whole, like all of their ancestry had moved to Egypt about 300 years earlier because their, their great, 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 great grandfather, Joseph, saved the whole world. Like he just saved the whole world. And so they, would, they grew up in Ramses, like hearing the story of Joseph over and over again. You can read about the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, or you can Google Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat and watch it, uh, whichever you want to do. Uh, you'll basically get the gist of it either way. So they grew up, both of them grew up in the family of bricklayers. So they're both of their fathers, their older brothers, they were bricklayers for, for the Pharaoh. They had been actually, uh, they're, they're all of their brothers, their fathers, they had all been kind of enslaved into really terrible work. And so they kind of grew up in this environment where, where dad was off all the time, all the brothers were off, and they grew up in big families, big families. I think Shifra had like 13 brothers and sisters, Pua had like eight, big, big families. And so they kind of grew up helping. You know, if you've ever seen a, a big family function, that's how they function. Like at some point in time, the, the oldest kids start to help take care of the youngest kids. It's just how it works, as I've met with families that have these very large households. And so they just kind of grew up. But what really kind of brought them together, it was fascinating, was that they both, they both had these very kind of uh, formative experiences with their moms and bearing a child. So because they grew up in this environment where their brothers at a very young age were forced into servitude and first out working, laying bricks, and dad was always gone, big family, both of their moms had become pregnant. And what was interesting was both of their moms came to a point in their pregnancy, late but not late enough to deliver, but began the delivery process. And they were both in danger of dying. And this is very primitive, this is archaic, there wasn't any time. And so both of these young girls at the age of like 12, 13, they actually had to help deliver their sibling. And both did this successfully. And their sibling survived and mom survived. And the stories of these two girls just kind of started to feed and they ended up meeting and they formed this incredible friendship because they had shared this experience and that moment formed for them a bond. That moment was like this big deal. And as everything around them started to shape, as all of the oppression set in, because that's what happened, because time has kind of a cruel memory. 
And so what had happened to these folks, to, to the families of Shifra and Pua, is that they, they, at some point in time, everything started to kind of shift around Joseph's legacy. So they're growing up, they're, they're childhood friends, they know one another, they've had this experience, but what they're seeing happening all around them are their brothers and their fathers being more and more and more oppressed. Because over time, what had happened was the love of the Hebrew people was shifting and fading to fear. Because there was a point in time where they would just celebrate. The Egyptians just celebrated the Hebrews. They celebrated them because Joseph had saved the entire world. But over time, that, that just turned slowly to fear of the other. Fear of the other. They just said, we don't quite understand these Hebrews. And they just keep multiplying. And so after 300 years of, uh, of a decrease in memory and an increase in fear, like the tension just continued to rise to this feverish pitch, to the point where Pharaoh said, we've got to control this. We've got to wear them out. They're having babies. We've got to wear them out, make them tired. So they enslave them. They put them to work. But that doesn't work. And so there's this great fear that what happens to Egypt if, if we get invaded? What happens if the Hebrews turn from us? All these fears that were completely unfounded, ungrounded, but they were other people. We didn't understand their values. They worshiped God differently. They thought about gods differently than we do. They ate different food. And so there was just all these negative assumptions. And so the oppression kind of began. And it began with oppressing the, brother, oppressing the brothers and the fathers. Let's oppress them. Make them too tired to make babies. That didn't work. That did not work at all. And the oppression just kind of mounts. And so interestingly enough, it's in this climate that these two young women grow up. And they are now older. And, and, and as children, they had had that experience. And they have this love for children now. They have this love for kids because they, they saw the miracle of birth and life. And they felt so alive when they were helping their mothers. And so they actually grew up together. And they said, we want to become midwives. And because they had this passion, you know, they were like the, the babysitters that everybody wanted. Do you ever, have you ever fought with another family in the neighborhood for like the A-plus babysitter, right? And you're like sabotaging their, the neighbor's plans that night. Like you're flooding their driveway. You're doing all, because you want Tony. Tony's the best babysitter in the neighborhood. He is the, the man. And so, but you know, they want Tony too on this. Like that was, Sh that was Shipra and Pua. Like people wanted them. They just, they were so good with kids. And so as they grew older and older and older, they said, why don't you become midwives? So they grew up as midwives. And eventually they came into leadership of the whole midwiving community, the guild of midwives, if you want to call it that. It's like they were in charge. Like they brought leadership to that community. They knew who was pregnant. They knew who needed care. They loved it. They loved organizing the other women to make sure that every pregnant Hebrew woman got the care that they deserved. And they were good at their job. I mean, they were really good at their job. We, can know, we know they're good at their job because the birth rates and, and the child mortality rates were very low in the Hebrew community. They just kept having babies. They were like rabbits. And this is what produced all the fear. But it was in this climate, they're very successful, but they're still very, very poor, very oppressed, wondering where the next meal comes from, wondering if they'll have their daily bread, wondering if there'll be clothes for this baby that's going to be born. Now, meanwhile, Pharaoh's trying to figure out how in the world do we suppress the Hebrews? His plan isn't worked. And so he understands now we've got to take this up a level. And so he decides, I'm going to try and figure out how to control the birth rate. And so what Pharaoh does is he says, listen, who's in charge of the midwives? Who's in charge of the midwives? He finds out it's Shifra and Pua. And so he calls them in 
And he says, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a little carrot out here. I'm not going to try the stick yet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a little carrot out. And he decides to exploit their poverty for his gain. So Pharaoh calls them in and he sends the limo, right? I mean, he sends everything he can. He goes and picks them up in style, right? They have never seen what they're seeing. They get picked up in Pharaoh's chariots. They get driven to the palace. They show up and there's all the wine they could imagine. There's all the food. They've never seen food and clothing, anything like this. And Pharaoh says, here's the deal. I want to hire you. I want to give you a job. And it's not just any job. This job is going to help our Egypt. It's going to to offer you this opportunity to be like Joseph. You're going to have an opportunity, Shifra and Pua, you're going to have an opportunity to save the world from famine because we have a problem that's growing here in Egypt. We have too many mouths to feed. And if you'll, if you'll take this job, if you'll take, I will make sure that your families are taken care of for the rest of your life and for the rest of their life. Generations will be changed. I'll make sure you have all the food you need. I'll make sure you have all the clothing that you need. I'll make sure that the midwives have everything that they need. The best of the Egypt, that the Egyptians have to offer, we'll give it to you. Your reward will be great. And I need every midwife to do their part. I've already talked with the Egyptian midwives and they're on board. And this is the only way. And it's so unfortunate, but this is what we're going to have to do. What I need you to do is when you get on the birthing stool, here's what's going to happen. When that baby is born, if that baby is a girl, beautiful, wonderful. Hand that over to mom. Let that baby cry. Let them celebrate. It's a beautiful thing. But we've got to stop the production of baby boys. So when that baby boy comes out, I need you to make it so that you present a stillborn child. And it's going to be sad and it's going to be hard, but this is the only way we know to control the the population here in Egypt. And if we don't control it, there's going to be a huge famine, but you can be just like Joseph. You can save Egypt just like Joseph. You can actually change the perception of all the Hebrews. You could actually bring them a sense of dignity. This is what you can do. Just present the boys as stillborn. Make sure they never cry. And so now Shipra and Pua are faced with this incredible reality. The most powerful person in the world has called them in and said, this is what's expected. And they knew They knew that this is the carrot, but they knew there would be a stick that would come with it. And as they went home, back in the the chariot, they got back, they knew, what are we going to do? If we do this, we'll be going against what we believe about God, about faith, about community, but we'll also be caring for our community. I mean, there is a lot of us, there is a problem. If we don't do this, are we going to lose our lives? Are we going to lose our, what's going to happen to us? And at the end of the day, the two of them decided they won't have anything to do with it. They're not going to do it. They're going to defy and rebel against this request. They know it's not right. And so they call all the midwives and they say, this is what's being asked of us. We're not going to do it. Business as usual. And that's what they did. Well, Pharaoh hears that they don't. Pharaoh hears that these baby boys continue to keep being born, and he calls them back in. Only this time, he didn't send the big chariot. Only this time, he didn't lay out all the food. This time, they were summoned, and he sent some soldiers, and he brought them there under guard. And he brought them in and was very angry. And he says, why are you letting this happen? I thought we had an agreement. I thought we had an arrangement. I thought you knew what I could do for you. And here's what's fascinating. Shipra and Pua, in this moment, they lied right through their teeth. 
mean, they just, they were very good liars. They didn't look at Pharaoh and say, you're a jerk. We're not going to do it. Like they didn't take the whole like the, the approach that, that like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would take later on. Like whatever you're going to do to us, do to us, but we're never going to follow you. Like that's not, they just lied. <laughs> they said, well, here's the deal, Pharaoh, like no problems with the plan. Like we totally get it, but you've got to understand something about these Hebrew women. Like there's something fierce. Like they start having babies and by the time we get there, the baby's born, crying in mom's arms. What are we supposed to do at that point in time? Just take the baby and kill it? How am I going to do that? Like these Egyptian women, they call you six, seven weeks before they're due. Like I got a tummy ache. We get there. We're there forever. No problem. We could, of course the Egyptians can do it, but these Hebrew women, they barely need us. What are we supposed to do? That's where the story ends. What are we supposed to do? Pharaoh gets ticked off and says, okay. So he amps up the game. And now he calls all the Egyptian people. He says, forget it. Oppressed labor isn't working. My plan for stillborn birth of male children isn't working. And he calls all of the Egyptians to take any baby born child and throw that child into the Nile River from the Hebrew nation. And as we think about this story and we think about the dilemmas that we come into in our lives, here's what I don't want us to miss. The shipper and poor are willing to take whatever they're going to take from Pharaoh. They're willing to suffer the consequences because they understood that some promotions aren't worth the cost to their soul. And that is the standing principle for us thousands and thousands of years later, that there will always be opportunities ahead of us in some area of life where we can benefit, where we will receive a promotion, whether it's through our work or whether it's through our finances or anywhere. There's always this opportunity, but there are some opportunities that the cost to our souls is not worth it. They knew that. They knew, what will this cost us in our understanding of who we are, of the way in which we exist in community, the way in which we understand God? What the cost was too great? And they said, no. And so in your everyday normal life, in my everyday normal life, if we're trying to live as peacemakers, this path that Jesus lays out for us, here's some questions that I think this story brings up for us. First question we can ask, we're faced with a situation, all of a sudden we get that kind of weird feeling in our stomach, which is kind of the spirit of God saying, don't put that in here with me, <laughs> right? Like, don't be thinking you can be made in my image and like throw that junk on me in here. No, no, no. So here's some questions when we start to feel that uneasiness that'll help us decide whether we take the promotion or not. First question, will this promotion promote life? Will this opportunity promote life or death in others? It's clear it'll promote life in you right, and me, but there's something inside of us that we just have to ask. Okay, just like this situation, Pharaoh says to Shifra and Pua in, in Exodus, when you act as midwives for the Hebrew women, look on the birth stool. If it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, she may live. Right, So there's promotion, there's opportunity, there's safety for the two uh, women, but not for others. Now, most of us are not going to be faced with that type of a dilemma. It's, it's not going to feel like a dilemma, right? It's going to be like, well, time to, time to check out my Indeed account and see what's out there, right? You have a boss ask you to do that you know, with a staff member. Listen, here's the deal. Go ask them if they, do, uh, if they want this job and if they'll do this. If they say no, just take them out back, put them in the dumpster. If they say yes, then carry on. Like most of us aren't going to be presented with that, but we are going to be presented with things that give us the opportunity for more, but we'll remove the opportunity for someone else to have more. 
and it will promote us to live in a world where not everyone will have enough. And so the question is, is it promoting life for everyone? Another question we can ask, and this really gets to that image of God in us, is will this behavior, will this opportunity lead me into a split-souled existence? Like, you can live split-souled. Did you know that? Like, one of the ways you live split-souled is saying, well, I'll wear this to church and this not to church. <laughs> it's a funny example, but it's true, right? Like, we can say, that's a, like, I'll, I'll behave and, and I'll live into my true authentic self in this environment, but in this environment, I won't because I won't be accepted, I won't fit in. Like, that's a split-souled reality. And so does this opportunity force you to become two separate people in two separate places? That, well, when I'm in the boardroom, when I'm in the executive room, when I'm, when I'm on the assembly line, I'm this person under this ethic, but when I'm outside of there, I'm this person under this ethic, this morality. And that's a good sign. If I'm being asked to live in a way that puts darkness onto the truth of my life, right? No matter, and, and I'm saying this, no matter whether what you're doing is technically right or wrong by whatever standard, when darkness is thrown on it and you're forced to live outside of that truth, that's going to present you with a split-souled self. And that will be torment. And you're kind of living outside of that image of God. And so the midwives knew this. Like they make the decision, no, we're not going to do this, right? The midwives in 117, it says that they feared God. They feared God. They didn't do as the king of Egypt had ordered them, but the, they let the boys live. And so we understand through Jesus what fearing God means, right? Fearing God isn't being afraid that God's going to get me, right? But to fear God is to recognize the damage that a decision can make in my ability to live in the image of God. Like I have a healthy understanding that if I do this, I am throwing mud on the image of God as I understand it in Jesus. That's what I think as Christians we're saying, the best way to live our image of God is through Jesus. And so we're saying, I'm throwing mud on that ability, right? The psychological word or the, the, the modern term with this would be like psychological damage. Like what psychological damage is this going to produce in my life? What is it going to have on me? And the spiritual language for that is damage to the soul. We're talking about the same thing. For so long, like in the church world, we're unwilling to say we're talking about the same realities, that when we have to live this secret life, when we have to, whether for whatever reason, there's damage that gets done to our psyche. And so if that's going to take place. Another question we should ask is, what steps can I take, right, that are consistent with my morals and values? Like I'm put in this situation, what can I do and how should I act? It's not that I have to run away. It's not that, but what can I do to defy, to rebel in a way that's consistent with my morals and values? I love that Shifra and Pua, like they didn't mount a plan to assassinate Pharaoh. <laughs> they didn't go to the elders of the Hebrews and be like, oh, we got a problem. We need to send in the army, the special forces, like it's time to go and take the palace. That's not what they did. They just said, no, we're not going to do it. And then they lied about it. <laughs> I love that so much, by the way. <laughs> As a person who's not a rule follower, I love that there's these passages in the Bible. They're like, yeah, you should totally lie there. Absolutely. And like all the rule followers are like, there's a part of me that is this big rule follower that's like, no. But then there's a part of me that Jesus is always trying to liberate that's like, yes. <laughs> like think critically about lying, right? So they stand right before Pharaoh and they give him this big lie. They're like, hey, the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women. They're robust. They give birth before the midwives arrives. Ah, lie, liar, going to hell. We don't lie, don't lie. That's one of the top 10. Don't tell lies. 
whatever, calm down, relax, everybody. That's what I think is beautiful, right? It's like sometimes you just got to lie. Like that's all you can do is do the right thing and then lie about doing the right thing. And sleep well at night. Because <laughs> see, the big question that this story faces us and brings to us, and we'll kind of head, head down the clothing path, clothe, we'll, we'll close this out here, we'll land the plane. Like what's your moral compass? Like that's really what this comes down to in our workspaces, in our life. Like what's our moral compass? And my, my heart for you is that your moral compass would be Jesus. That's my heart because I believe deeply in that. I've experienced it. I've seen it transform lives. And particularly in our culture, I think there are plenty of great moral compasses out there. I don't think, but I, I see this wonderful transformative thing that a commitment to the way of Jesus makes, not just in our lives individually, but in the life of a community. The tr- living into the real reality of Jesus, not the religion that bears Jesus's name, which is deeply problematic at times. But to just live as this follower of Jesus, that moral compass, what that does, that, how that transforms us. Like that's my heart for anybody that walks through here, whether it's your first time. I think that's the heartbeat of our church and has always been. Let's just focus in on Jesus because our understanding of the rules around Jesus, that's always gonna change culture and, and life. It's always going to dictate those. That, but, but if we can focus in on Jesus, and Jesus, the, the like moral compass of Jesus, I call that the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> right? Matthew five through seven is I think the corpus of what Jesus says is this is the moral compass that we live by as a community, as individuals. And if we'll start to actually live by that moral compass, if we'll make that the grounding, like morality for our lives, like the principles that are found there, the radical way of Jesus, all of a sudden we discover the big concept, the religious concept of life in the spirit, which can sound like super freaky and weird if you're kind of outside of religion, like life in the spirit, what does that mean? Like, am I having an appointment with Casper every week? And I don't like that language. I totally get that. And you just have to remember, we have to talk about these things in a post-enlightenment way, right? But life in the spirit means to live in the way of Jesus and to let that way of Jesus energize you, to let it transform you, to let it speak to you. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you, right? How many of you all have school spirit? This is the best way I know to talk about this. Some of you don't have any school spirit. You're like me. It was like, the, just get me out of high school. I don't even care, right? But you go to a school spirit rally. There's the spirit of the school, right? Is there, it's not a ghost. It's, it's, a, it's the spirit of something. And you let that flow out of you. And that's what Paul, this life in the spirit, you'll hear this language. But that's the idea. Like the spirit of Jesus, that, those priorities, those values, that way of living promotes life and life to the fullest. And if, if we live by this moral compass of Jesus, not only do we discover what life in the spirit really is, but we live in the light of God's blessing. I, I think that's powerful. Like it produces God's blessing in our lives. This is what Exodus says, that God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very numerous. God dealt well. Again, pre-enlightenment, everything that happens in this world is the hand of the gods But look at the principle here. There's a blessing that came as they feared God, as they said, I'm not gonna make decisions that split my soul. I'm not gonna make decisions that mar the image of God in me. But it's important that we remember (laughs) that the blessing of God often brings with it the opposition of evil. That the blessing of God is not the blessing of American dreams, 
The blessing of God is not necessarily the blessing of the HOA leaders. The, what I find is that the blessing of God will, in a world that's being transformed, in a world that is being brought into this picture of a perfect Jerusalem where everybody has enough, where the lion lays down with the lamb, where the swords are beaten into plowshares, when that evolution is taking place and you're marching with it, there's always an opposition to it. And the blessing of God brings with it the opposition of evil because the very next line says that Pharaoh then commanded all his people, throw into the Nile every boy that is born, but you may let all the girls. So, so now it just gets amped up. It gets amped up. John, the, the evangelist, the writer of the Gospel of John, says it right at the beginning of the story of Jesus. He says, what came to be through him was life. So everything started with the Christ, with this living reality. Everything started there. And the life was the light of the human race, this incarnation that is present in Jesus. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The implication here is that the darkness will always try to overcome the light. The darkness will always lie. The darkness will always tell us that it's going to last. It's never going to end. Stop fighting it. But faith tells us, no, the dawn is coming. So we've got a song to wrap up our time together. As we do that, I would just encourage you to consider why you're here, to walk out of this place, to log off from being online, knowing that there was a purpose and a reason that the universe brought you into this atmosphere, into this day, into this moment. And I put some things that maybe could spark that in you. Maybe God's inviting you to read and study that moral compass of Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7. There are a lot of great resources out there. If you'd like to know some books or some resources, just send me an email. And I'll be happy to share with you things that I think are wonderful tools and resources. And it's a way that I get your email address and get to know you. So maybe that's, maybe just read Matthew 5 through 7. Get to know the Sermon on the Mount. I actually think it is probably the most important bit of literature for the human race of all time, if we're going to survive ourselves. Maybe God's inviting you to just take some time and ask for a revelation around where might there be moral dilemmas in your profession? Where might your profession be asking of you things that are contrary to the way of Jesus? And you've got to figure out a way to navigate those so you don't live a split-souled life, so you can be prepared for them. And maybe you're in the darkest place you've ever been in, in your work or in your family or in your finances or wherever it might be. And maybe, maybe God is just whispering, trust. Trust that the darkness you're experiencing is not the final chapter this song that the band is going to sing, that I'm going to encourage you to stand and sing. It says, even the darkest days are temporary. And it's this like statement, you are the everlasting light, that there will be dark days, but those are temporary. And we're reminding our truest self what we know to be true of God and the universe. The darkness is but a moment and the dawn is coming. So will you stand with me and sing this song? Well, our closing song for this week is called Everlasting Light, and that is by Mosaic MSC, and I have a link to it in the show notes. Go download the song, take it with you this week, and be encouraged. Also, generosity is a regular part of being together, and I have linked different ways to give in the show notes, or if you're going to go to it later, you can go to crossroadscolorado.com slash 
give. You can text to give, you can give online, you can do Venmo, or if you've filled out a Connect card, you'll receive regular letters in the mail, probably quarterly, including giving envelopes. If that's meaningful to you, that's another way that you can give by mailing it in. So thank you again for being here, and I'm going to hand it back over to Ryan as he wraps up his message and sends us out into our week with a blessing. So Shipra and Pua, they lie. And I wish I could tell you that history would tell us that they went back home and they did their thing and they lived happily ever after. But history would tell us, if we're honest, that they never went home from Pharaoh. Histories would tell us the probability that a a maniac who would commit genocide would certainly not let these two women who rebelled against him leave. And so as I would think about that space, there was deep mourning in the midwife community. There was a hole that was left in the leadership of all of the Hebrews. That we have these two women's story of bravery and courage because it didn't end well. And darkness set in. It culminated. It was the darkest it could ever be. And in that moment of darkness, as I thought about it, what's so powerful is when you turn the page in your Bible, the very next chapter, Moses is born. Moses is born. And I just want to encourage you, if you're in the end of that chapter and it is the darkest moment, that Moses is always being born, is always being born over and over and over again in our lives. There's always a Moses that love provides for us to bring us out of that darkness. Will you do me a favor and just spread your arms if you're willing to, to receive our blessing for the week. Take a breath. May God bless you and keep you this week as you navigate the complexities of your everyday, normal lives. May you live the life of a peacemaker in your work, whatever that might be. And for those of you who your professional lives feels shrouded in darkness, may you find the strength to hope that the dawn will soon appear. For those facing ethical dilemmas, perhaps a path of promotion is in front of you, but you know in your heart that it will lead you away from the path of Jesus. May you find the courage to rebel as Shifra and Pua did, acting in wise and cunning ways that promote life and not death. And for those who are responsible for creating and maintaining the ethics of their professional environment, to those who've been entrusted with leadership and influence, May you find the courage to model the way of Jesus, to create an environment that promotes life, an environment that values people over corporate profits or personal gain. And may all of us find renewed strength for this week's work by trusting in faith that the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in each and every one of us. Amen. Amen. Have a great Labor Day, everyone, and an awesome week.